Chapter twenty four of Captain Antifer by Jules Verne. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Joe Denoya, Somerset, New Jersey. Chapter twenty four. Next day, beneath the baobab tree, which sheltered them from the fiery rays of the sun, two men were in conversation. As they had come up the principal street of Luongo, where they had met by the greatest chance, they had recognized each other with many gestures of surprise. One had said, You, here? Yes, here, the other had replied, and I signed from the first, who was Saug. The second, a Portuguese man, Barroso, had followed him out of the town. Although Saug did not speak the language of Barroso, Barroso spoke the language of his excellency, for he had lived for some time in Egypt. Two old acquaintances, these. Barroso was one of the band of adventurers under Saug, when he was engaged in every kind of depredation, without being troubled by the agents of the viceroy, thanks to the influence of Moran, his father, the cousin of Kamlik Pasha. When the band had been broken up, after two or three outrages too bad to be overlooked, Barrasso had disappeared. Returning to Portugal, where there was no scope for his particular abilities, he had left Lisbon to work in a factory at Luongo. At this period, the trade of the colony, almost ruined by the abolition of the slave trade, was reduced to the export of ivory, palm oil, ground nuts, and mahogany. At the moment, this Portuguese, who had been a sailor, and was then about fifty, commanded a small vessel named the Porto Alegre, engaged in the coasting trade. Barroso was possessed of a conscience so utterly devoid of scruples, and an audacity acquired in his old trade that made him just the man Saouk wanted for his criminal machinations. When they reached the foot of this baobab, which the arms of twenty men could not have encircled, though it was nothing compared with the banyan of Muscat, they could talk without fear of being overheard, of anything they pleased that threatened the safety of Antifer and his companions. To begin with, they told each other how they had spent their lives since the Portuguese had left Egypt, and then Saúl came to business without beating about the bush. Although he took care not to let Barroso know the immense amount of treasure he was anxious to get hold of, he did not fail to tempt his cupidity with the bait of a considerable sum to be gained. But, added he, to help me, I want a man, resolute, courageous. You know me, Excellency, replied the Portuguese, and you know that I will stop at nothing. If you have not changed... I have not changed. Know, then, that there are four men we must get rid of, and perhaps a fifth, if I find it necessary to disembarrass myself of a certain Ben Omar, whose clerk I'm supposed to be, under the name of Nazim. One more makes little difference. In this case, certainly, and he will give you no trouble. What are you going to do? This is my plan, replied Saouk, after looking about to see that he would not be overheard. Three of these men are Frenchmen, a certain Captain Antifer, his friend and his nephew, and a Tunisian banker named Zambuco, just landed at Luongo to take possession of a treasure deposited on one of the islands of the Gulf of Guinea. Whereabouts? Near Moyumba Bay, replied the Egyptian. Their intention is to travel up the coast to that town, and I think it would be easy to attack them as they are returning with their treasure to wait for the steamer from San Paul to Dakar. Nothing easier, said Barrasso. I can find a dozen trusty fellows, always ready for business, will be glad to assist you for an agreed sum. I was sure of it, Barrasso, and in these desert places we would be certain to succeed. Of course, but I have a better plan to propose. What is that? I am in command of a vessel of a hundred and fifty tons, taking goods from one port to another along the coast. My ship is going to start in a couple of days for Baraka, on the Gaboon, a little to the north of Mayumba. Ah, we might take advantage of that. Antifer would be only too pleased to take passage in her to avoid the fatigues and dangers of a land journey. 
You can land us at Mayumba, deliver your goods at the Gaboon, and return to pick us up. And while we are on the passage to Luongo, that is understood. How many men have you on board? Twelve. You can trust them? As myself. And what are you taking to the Gaboon? A cargo of ground nuts and six elephants bought by a house at Baraka, which are to be sent on to a menagerie in Holland. You do not speak French? No. Do not forget that I am not supposed to speak it or to understand it. I will tell Ben Omar to make the proposal to you, and Antifer will not hesitate to accept it. There could be no doubt of this, and there was every reason to fear that the two legatees would disappear with their companions during the return voyage across the Gulf of Guinea. And who could hinder the crime? And who would find out the authors? Luango is not under Portuguese rule, like Angola and Benguela. It is one of the independent kingdoms of the Congo, bounded by the Gaboon on the north and the Zaire on the south. But at this period, from Cape Lopez to Zaire, the native kings recognized the sovereign Luango and paid him tribute, generally in slaves. Such were Cassange, Tomba, Libolo, and other vassals reigning over the much-divided smaller territories. Societies regularly constituted among these Negroes, at the head, the king and his family, then the princes, that is, the sons of a princess, who alone can transmit nobility, then the husbands of the princesses, who are suzerains, then the priests, the fetishes, or yangas, of whom the chief is Chitomi, by divine right, then the courtiers, the merchants, the retainers, that is to say, the people. As to slaves, there are many. There are too many. They are no longer sold to foreigners, it is true, owing to the consequences of European intervention in abolishing the trade. But although the king of Luongo is the monarch of a country that rejoices in independence, it does not follow that its roads are sufficiently guarded, that travelers are free from peril. And so it would have been difficult to find a territory more favorable, or a sea more suitable for a foul action. This it was that made Jewel so anxious, at least with regards to the land journey. If his uncle thought little about it, upset as he was, the young captain could not contemplate without serious alarm this land journey of a hundred and twenty miles along the coast to Mayumba Bay. He thought it his duty to tell the bargeman of this. What would you do, my boy? replied Tregomain. The cork is drawn, and we must drink the wine. In fact, continued Jewel, it was only a promenade between Muscat and Sahar, and then we were in good company. Could we not make up a caravan of natives at Luongo? I would no more trust these niggers than I would the hyenas and leopards and lions of the district. Ah, are there plenty of these beasts? Plenty of them, to say nothing of lentas, which are venomous vipers, of cobras which spit their foam in your face, of pythons thirty feet long. A nice place, my boy. Really, this excellent pasha cannot have chosen a more convenient one. And you think that these natives are not particularly intelligent, being like all the Congoese, but they are intelligent enough to rob and massacre the fools who venture in its abominable country. This fragment of dialogue gives a fair sample of the anxieties that Jewel shared with Tregomain, and consequently they are both greatly relieved when Saouk, by means of Ben Omar, introduced the Portuguese Barrasso to Captain Antifer and the Tunisian banker. No long stages across these dangerous countries, no fatigues in this excessive climate during so long a journey. As Saouk had said nothing of his previous connection with Barrasso, and as Jewel could have no suspicion that these two scoundrels had formerly known one another, his suspicions were not aroused. The voyage was to be by sea to Mayumba Bay. The weather was fine, 
They would be there in two days. The vessel would land the passengers, go on to Baraka, embark them on their return, and they would all go back to Luongo for the next steamer to take them to Marseille. Never had chance declared itself so clearly in favor of Captain Antifer. Of course, he would have to pay well for his passage. But what mattered the cost? There were two days to wait at Luongo, until the half-dozen elephants sent up from the interior were shipped on board the Porto Alegre. And so Tregamine and Jewel, the former always anxious to learn, amused themselves by strolling through the town, the Banza as it was called in Congolese. Luango, or Buala, the old city, measuring about two miles and a half in circumference, is built in the midst of a palm forest. It is composed of a collection of factories, surrounded by huts built of raffia twigs and covered with papyrus leaves. The traders are Portuguese, Spanish, French, English, Dutch, and German. Quite a mixture, as you see. But how new everything seemed to the bargemen. The Bretons on the banks of the Rance are not in the least like those half-naked natives, armed with bows and wooded swords and rounded axes. The king of Luongo, dressed up in a ridiculous old uniform, was not in the least like the prefect of Il et Valaine. The villages between St. Malo and Danan had no such huts sheltered by huge coconut trees. And the people of St. Malo are not polygamous, like the idle Congolese, who leave all the heavy work to their wives and go to bed when their wives are ill. But the land in Brittany is not as fertile as the land in Luongo. Here it is only necessary to scratch the ground to obtain superb crops of manfrigo, or millet, with ears weighing half a pound, of holcus, which grows without culture, of luco, which is used for bread, of maize giving three crops a year, of rice, yams, manioc, tamba, lentils, tobacco, sugarcane in the marshy districts, vines in the neighborhood of the Zaire, imported from Canary and Madeira, figs, bananas, oranges, called mambrocas, lemons, pomegranates, kudis, fruit in the shape of pine cones, containing a flowery, melting substance, new bonzems, a kind of nut much liked by the Negroes, and pineapples that grow naturally on the desert spots. And then, what huge trees, mangroves, sandalwoods, cedars, tamarinds, palms, and a number of those baobabs, from which is extracted a vegetable soap, and a residuum much appreciated by the natives. And what a crowd of animals, pigs, boars, zebras, buffalo, deer, gazelles, antelopes, elephants, jackals, porcupines, flying squirrels, wildcats, to say nothing of the innumerable varieties of monkeys, chimpanzees, ostriches, peacocks, thrushes, partridges, red and gray, edible locusts, bees, mosquitoes, canzos, satoles, and cousins more numerable than desire. A wonderful country, whose wonders Tregamine would have exhausted if he had time to study its natural history. Neither Antifred nor Zamuko could have told you if Luongo was peopled by whites or blacks. No, their eyes looked elsewhere. They were searching far away more to the north, for an imperceptible point, a point unique in this world, a sort of enormous diamond with fascinating scintillations, weighing thousands of carats and worth millions of pounds. Ah, how impatient they were to set foot on island number two and reach the end of their adventurous campaign. On the 22nd of May, at sunrise, the vessel was ready to sail. The six elephants had arrived the night before, and been embarked with the necessary precautions. They were magnificent animals that would not have disgraced Sam Lockhart's surface. It need scarcely be said that they were stowed in the hold. 
Maybe it was not very prudent to load a vessel of a hundred and fifty tons with such masses, which might interfere with its equilibrium. Jewel mentioned this to the bargeman. The vessel was, however, rather beamy and drew very little water, so as to enable her to come close in over the shallows. She had two masts rather far apart, and was of square rig, for a vessel of this kind only sails well before the wind, and she is not very speedy, she can at least be safely worked within sight of the coast. Besides, the wind was favorable. At Luongo, as in all the countries of the Gulf, the rainy season, which begins in September, ends in May, under the influence of winds coming from the northwest. On the other hand, though it may be fine from May to September, how insupportable is the heat, which is only tempered a little by the abundant dew of the nights. Since they had landed, our travelers had melted and grown thinner visibly. More than 93 degrees in the shade. In this country, if we are to believe certain explorers, little worthy of faith, who ought to have been born in Bouche de Rhone or Gascony, the dogs were obliged to be continually on the move to prevent them from burning their paws on the incandescent soil. And wild boars are found actually cooked in their skins. Trigamain was almost inclined to believe these stories. The Port Allegri set sail at eight o'clock in the morning. The passengers were all on board, men and elephants. The groups were as usual. Captain Antifer and Zimbuco, more hypnotized than ever by this island number two. And what a weight would be lifted from them when the lookout sighted it on the horizon. Tregermaine and Jewel, one forgetting the seas of Africa for the channel and the harbors of St. Malo, the other thinking of nothing but breathing the refreshing breeze. Saouk and Barroso talking together. And what was there to be astonished at, as they spoke the same language, and it was owing to their meeting that Antifer had obtained a passage on the vessel? The crew consisted of a dozen sturdy fellows, mostly Portuguese, and of very unprepossessing appearance. The uncle was absorbed in his thoughts and did not notice this, but the nephew remarked it and communicated his impressions to the bargeman, who replied that in such temperatures it is hazardous to judge people by their looks, and that one must not be too particular with regards to the crew of an African vessel. With the prevailing wind, the voyage up the coast promised to be delightful. Portentosa, Africa! Tregermaine would have said if he had known the pompous epithet with which the Romans greeted this continent. In truth, their thoughts had not been elsewhere, kept the Antifer and his companions, in passing the factory of Chalu, would have abandoned themselves to the just admiration which the natural beauties of the coast deserved. Alone among them, the bargeman gazed at it like a man who wished to carry away with him some remembrance of his journey. And what could he have more splendid than a succession of green forests covering the hillsides, dominated here and there by the heights of the Strauch Mountains, bathed with hot mists in their deep ravines. From mile to mile the beach ran back to give passage to the watercourses coming from the thick woods, which the tropical heats could not dry up. It is true that all this water did not reach the sea. Flocks of birds were gathered to drink of it. Peacocks, ostriches, pelicans, divers, animated the landscape with the beatings of their wings. Herds of graceful antelopes, troops of empalagas, or elans of the Cape, huge mammals capable of drinking a ton of this limpid water as easily as the bargemen could have tossed off a glass. Herds of hippopotamuses, looking at a distance like pink pigs, whose flesh, it seemed, is not despised by the natives. Tregomain, finding himself near Antifer in the bows, took occasion to remark, Eh, my friend, hippopotamus feet, a la Santa Menamud. Will that do for you? Antifer merely shrugged his shoulders and gave the bargeman one of those weary, vague looks which look at nothing. 
He no longer understands what is said to him, murmured Tregamane, using his handkerchief as a fan. On the edge of the shore were troops of monkeys, leaping from one tree to another, howling and grimacing when, by a movement of the rudder, the Port Alegre approached the beach. The birds, the hippopotamuses, and monkeys would have done no harm to our travelers if they had had to walk from Luongo to Mayumba. No, but would have been a more serious danger was the presence of leopards and lions, which were seen bounding about the underwood. Wonderfully supple brutes, anything but safe to meet with. When the night came, there were gruff howlings and lugubrious bayings to break the impressive silence which followed the fall of night. This concert reached the vessel like the moaning that precedes a storm. Troubled and excited, the elephants became restive in the hold, replying by savage grunts and shaking to as make the vessel's timbers groan. Decidedly, the cargo was likely to cause uneasiness to the passengers. Four days elapsed. Nothing occurred to break the monotony of the voyage. The fine weather continued. The sea was a dead calm, and Ben Omar felt no discomfort. There was no pitching, no rolling, and although the Port Alegre was heavily laden, she was almost insensible to the long undulations of the surge, which died out in a light surf on the beach. For his part, the bargeman never imagined that a voyage at sea could be so quiet. One would think we were on the Charmante Amelie, between the banks of the Rance, he said to his young friend. Yes, objected Jewel, with this difference, that there was not on the Charmante Amelie a captain like this Barroso and a passenger like this Nazim, whose intimacy with the Portuguese seems to me more and more suspicious. And what do you think they are meditating, my boy? replied Tregamine. It will be too late, for we ought to be near our goal. In fact, at sunrise on the 27th of May, after doubling Cape Bonda, the Port Alegre was within twenty miles of Mayumba. This Jewel ascertained from Ben Omar, who at his request asked Saouk, who asked Barossa. They would arrive, then, that very evening in this little port of the Luongo country. Already the coast began to curve in behind Point Matuti, describing a large bay, at the end of which the town was hidden. If island number two existed, if it occupied the place indicated in the document, it ought to be somewhere in this bay. And consequently, Antifer and Zambuco kept their eyes at the telescope, the glass of which they rubbed again and again. Unfortunately, the wind was light, the breeze almost gone. The Porto Alegre was hardly making two knots an hour. About one o'clock she rounded Point Matuti. There was a shout of joy on board. The future brothers-in-law had simultaneously sighted a series of islets in the bay. Surely the one they were in search of was one of the series? But which? That they would find out next day, when they observed the sun. Five or six miles to the east, Mayumba appeared on a spit of sand between the sea and the Banya Brook, with its factories its houses luminous among the trees. In front of the beaches were a few fishing boats, like large white birds. How calm was the surface of the bay! A canoe could not have been more tranquil on the surface of a lake. What shall we say, on the surface of a pond, or even on a large bowl of oil? The rays of the sun poured vertically down. Tregamine streamed like a fountain in a park on a festival day. The Porto Alegre drew nearer thanks to a few intermittent puffs from the west. The islands in the bay became more distinct. There were six or seven of them, like baskets of verdure. At six o'clock in the evening, the vessel was abreast of this archipelago. Antifer and Zambuco remained standing in the bows. Saouk, forgetting himself a little, could not hide his impatience, and justified by his manner the suspicions of Jewel. 
These three men devoured with their eyes the first of these islands. Did they expect to see it spout up a shower of millions from its flanks as from a crater of gold? If they had known that the island in which Kamali Pasha had buried his treasure was composed only of sterile rocks and bare stones, without a tree, without a shrub, no doubt they would have cried in despair. No, it is not that one yet. But since 1831, there had been 31 years which nature had time to cover the island with masses of verdure. The Port Alegre approached slowly, so as to round its northern point, her sails barely filled with the dying evening breeze. If the wind fell altogether, they would have to anchor and wait for the daylight. But, suddenly, a lamentable groaning was heard at the bargeman's side. He turned to see what it was. It was Ben Omar. The notary was pale. He was livid. His heart was in his lips. He was seasick. What? In such calm weather? In this sleepy bay, without a furrow on its surface? Yes, and there was nothing surprising in the poor man being fearfully sick, for the vessel had begun to roll in a most absurd and inexplicable manner. She rolled to port, then to starboard, in a most violent fashion. The crew rushed forward and rushed aft. Captain Barroso also ran. What is it? asked Jewel. What is the matter? asked Tregamine. Was it some submarine eruption, the shocks of which threatened to sink the Portalegre? Neither Antifer, nor Zambuco, nor Saouk seemed to notice what was happening. Ah! exclaimed Jewel. The elephants! Yes, it was the elephants who were making the ship roll. Under the influence of some inexplicable caprice, the idea occurred to them to bear all together, alternating on their hind feet and their forefeet. They made the vessel rock, and it seemed to please them, as it pleases the squirrel in his gyratory course in his revolving cage. But what squirrels, these huge pachyderms! The rolling increased. The taffrails nearly touched the water. The vessel was in danger of filling first on one side, then the other. Barrasso and a few of the crew hurried down into the hold. They tried to calm the monstrous animals. There were shouts and blows, but no result. The elephants, brandishing their trunks, raising their ears, waggling their tails, got more excited. And more and more, the Porto Alegre rolled, 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 until the water came pouring into her. It did not take long. In ten seconds, the sea had reached the hold, and down she went, while the screams of the foolish elephants were drowned in the abyss. End of chapter 24